Hello. This is episode 16 of The Hate Crime Files, a podcast about crimes typically involving violence, motivated by prejudice based on race, religion, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, or other grounds. I'm your host, Terrence Heath. This podcast covers disturbing events and may not be suitable for everyone. It is not recommended for young children. Listener discretion is advised. In his 2017 book, Angry White Men, American Masculinity at the End of an Era, sociologist Michael Kimmel coined the term aggrieved entitlement to describe the state of mind of some American white men who become angry to the point of committing mass murder and genocide. Kimmel argues that white men who join extremist movements are part of the downwardly mobile middle class who feel betrayed by the country they love, discarded like trash on the side of the information highway. Mark Ames at Exiled Online describes in even more stark terms the conditions that give rise to aggrieved entitlement. He writes, Most Americans' lives have grown worse over the past three decades. Today, average American male workers earn less than they did in 1979 in inflation-adjusted dollars, while the top 400 richest Americans own more than the bottom 150 million Americans, a wealth gap only found in tin-pot third-world kleptocracies and not seen here since 1928. That alone is reason enough to hate. In our society, Ames argues there's nowhere for that hatred to go but rightward. Kimmel describes aggrieved entitlement as the sense that those benefits to which you believed yourself entitled have been snatched away from you by unseen forces larger and more powerful. Kimmel argues that the increasing impossibility of achieving the American dream radicalizes some white men who are drawn into extremist ideologies. White men, he writes, have been running with the wind at our backs all these years, and what we think of as fairness to us has been built on the backs of others. These men, Kimmel writes, believe that they are entitled to certain things, power, wealth, sex, and that they are entitled to use violence to restore what they believe is rightfully theirs. The concept of aggrieved entitlement is an emotion I believe many white men feel in the United States, Kimmel said in an interview with Vox.com. They feel entitled as white men to the idea that this is their country, this is their world. What they inherited from their fathers and grandfathers, what they thought was their birthright, was access to money, power, and women. It's not that they expected to have it, but that they felt entitled to it. And so when they see others getting it, they feel like it's an injustice. Kimmel argues angry white men blame the wrong people for their problems, turning their resentment upon women and people of color, for example, rather than the role of corporations and government in stacking the economic deck against them. Nicole Froyo simplifies Kimmel's definition, writing at Medium, aggrieved entitlement is when white men don't get what they believed they deserved because it was given to a woman or a minority. A definition, Froyo writes, that remains incomplete because it does not recognize that racism and sexism are inherent parts of whiteness, she says, or, or address the concept of whiteness as inherently problematic. 
by all appearances, 48-year-old George Sodini seemed to be a pretty successful guy. He was in good shape and reasonably good-looking. He owned a car and had a good job. But from his perspective and in his own words, Sodini bore more of a resemblance to the man Kimmel described. Ames at Exiled Online offers a blunt assessment. He writes, George Sodini's diaries answer that most idiotic liberal question of all, what's the matter with Kansas? The answer to that question, Mr. Frank, is simple. Kansas is very fucking pissed off. That's what's wrong. Kansas can't get its dick wet if its life depended on it. All Kansas has is a duffel bag full of really cool guns to keep Kansas entertained. That and a soothing hate soundtrack provided by Fox News, Rush, Gingrich, and the rest. What's so hard to understand about Kansas's problem? On August 4, 2009, that frustration led George Sodini to walk into an aerobics class at an L.A. fitness gym in Collier Township, Pennsylvania, and opened fire on the people he blamed for his anger, women. Most of what's known about Sodini, his background, and his motives comes from a 4,610-word web diary he kept for nine months. Sodini was a local. He started in the Baldwin-Whitehall School District, attending eighth grade at Harrison Middle School in 1974 through 75. He then attended ninth and tenth grades at Whitehall Junior High and 11th and 12th grades at Baldwin High School. He graduated from high school in June 1979. Sodini actually attended the same schools as Robert Bowers, who killed 11 in an anti-Semitism-fueled shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh's Squirrel Hill neighborhood in October 2018. If you'd like to learn more about the Tree of Life Synagogue shooting, you can check out episode 8 of this podcast, which covers it in depth. Bowers attended grades 6 through 8 at Harrison Middle School and entered Baldwin High School in the fall of 1986, withdrawing in November 1989 during his senior year. What's known about Sodini's family life comes from his writing, as he described his relationships with various family members. Sodini had little to say about his dad, except that he felt rejected by his father. He wrote, My dad never, not once, talked to me or asked me about my life's details and tell me what he knew. He was just a useless sperm donor. His mother, on the other hand, he portrayed as overly involved and domineering. He writes, Mom, the central boss, don't piss her off or she will be mad and vindictive for years. She actually thinks she's normal, very dominant, her way and only her way, with no flexibility towards everyone in the household, a power and control thing. People outside the immediate family like her. Why are people vicious with their closest ones? She is the boss above all other bosses. Sudini felt bullied by his brother, he writes. Brother was actually counterproductive and would try to embarrass me or discourage my efforts when pursuing things, especially girls early on, teen years. Useless bully. He was twice my size. He continues in another entry. Always the big bully, twice the size of most others. When he bullied or harassed someone, it was the other person who deserved it. It was always about him. Way too self-absorbed, too. Still is. Used to like to embarrass guys in front of their girlfriends. Lots of other stuff. Kind of guy you actually love to hate. 
the biggest, most self-centered jagoff I know. He took those bullying skills into the business world and is doing good financially. He's a big wheel, only in his mind. Most people can see through all his manipulation. He only calls when he wants something. Sodini graduated in 1992 from the University of Pittsburgh with a degree in computer science. And starting in 1999, he worked as a systems analyst at the law firm of K&L Gates. He lived in Scott Township. The best example of Sedini's relationships with women seems to be his acquaintance with Pamela Quillen. In the aftermath of the shooting, Quillen spoke out about her experience with Sedini. I want his victims and the survivors of those who died to know that George Sedini didn't come out of the blue, she said. Quillen, an electrical engineer, said she met Sedini in 1999 at the Tetelestai Church in Oakmont. He expressed an interest in her early on, but she said she discouraged his advances because she was dating someone at the time. Still, they saw each other at church functions. They didn't date, but they sometimes carpooled to social events. At first, Quillen said, Sodini appeared friendly and harmless. She said he fit into social groups good enough, despite being socially awkward. Church deacon Jack Ricard described Sodini as just one of the guys. However, Quillen soon noticed a dark, brooding side to him. He complained of loneliness, rejection from women, and feeling like a zombie, but refused to seek help. Quillen began to worry about Sodini in 2003 when he discovered that she wasn't dating anyone. He created a password-protected webpage dedicated to her. She took offense at false content that she said showed he was living in a fantasy. He thought that was his big opportunity. He thought I would be pleased with it, she said. Quillen asked Sodini to remove the page, but he refused. She sought help through the church and even contacted the police about getting a restraining order after Sodini began to stalk and threaten her with talk about guns. To me, in my mind, it was a distinct possibility that he would shoot me. I wasn't raised to take the threat of guns cavalierly, Quillen said. I was afraid. Quillen said police couldn't help because she had no proof. Church members intervened. Deacon Charles Matone said he gave Sudini a letter asking him to stay away from the church for a few months because he was bothering Quillen. A state trooper spoke to Sedini on Quillen's behalf, after which he stopped calling, but she continued to worry. Quillen eventually sold her home and moved into a rental property where she lived until she took a job 100 miles away in Ohio. In June 2007, she moved to Colorado. Each time I felt it would be more difficult for him to find me, she said. For the most part, Sedini appears to have kept to himself. A neighbor, Connie Fontanese, said Sodini was so antisocial that we really didn't learn anything personal about him. We will now all have to live with the fact that we knew him, but obviously we did not really know him, said Candace Geddes, 58, who lived a few houses away from Sedini for 12 years. He was always very friendly, if not a bit reclusive, she said. About two years earlier, Geddes began noticing changes in Sedini. He stopped talking to neighbors. He was always a little off, but he became even more so, Geddes said. She saw Sedini's mother visit as well as another woman she believed was his sister, but they were the only visitors and they didn't come often. 
Geddes didn't see Sardini for weeks before the shooting. His house was looking a little less tidy. The lawn was overgrown, she said. To be honest, I assumed he was away on vacation. Sardini may have been a cipher to his neighbors. Still behind the closed door of his home, he was already planning violent action and working on the written record of the feelings of isolation and frustration he would claim led him to it. Why do this to young girls, he wrote. Just read below. I kept a running log that includes my thoughts and actions after I saw this project was going to drag on. Sedini's post-election entry on November 5th indicates he'd already formed his plan. He seethes with the aggrieved entitlement Kimmel describes over his lack of female companionship as he watches other men enjoy what he believes is unfairly denied him. Plan to do this in the summer, but figure I'd stick around to see the election outcome. This particular one got so much attention, and I was just curious. Not like I give a flying F who won, since this exit plan was already planned. Good luck to Obama. He will be successful. The liberal media loves him. America has chosen the black man. In light of this, I got ideas outside of Obama's plans for the economy and such. Here it is. Every black man should get a young white girl. Kinda a reversed indentured servitude thing. Long ago, many a white male landowner had a young Negro wench for his desires. About time the tables were turned on that. LOL. More so than they dig the white dudes. Every daddy know when he sends his little girl to college, she'll be real good. I saw it. Not my little girl, Daddy says. Yeah, right. Black dudes have their choice of best white blank. You do the math. There are enough young whites so all the brothers can have at least one for three or six months or so. On December 22, 2008, Sedini writes of having joined a gym, most likely L.A. Fitness, and his objectification of the women he saw there. Time is moving along. Planned to have this done already. I will just keep a running log here as time passes. Many of the young girls here look so beautiful as to not be human, very edible. After joining this gym, started lifting weights and like it. It is December 24th, 2008 entry. Sodini laments his extended lack of a girlfriend and his failure to find even a sexual partner with palpable hopelessness. Moving into Christmas again. No girlfriend since 1984. Last Christmas with Pam was in 1983. Who knows why? I'm not ugly or too weird. No sex since July 1990 either. I was 21, no blank, over 18 years ago, and did it maybe only 50 to 75 times in my life, getting to think that a woman now would just uh, get in the way of things, isolated. I have extra money and enjoy traveling with my 25 to 30 days of vacation. L.A. was the best, but going alone is not too fun. Invited to a party on Christmas Day tomorrow. Seems about 15 to 25 people will actually show. I like her parties. I can meet new people and talk. Got the next eight days off. I should have exit plan done and practiced by then. I know nothing will change, no matter how hard I try or what goals I set. Four days later, Sodini had set an initial date for his exit plan. January 6th, 2009. 
An entry on December 29th reveals Sardini's sense of hopelessness stems from his extrapolating rejection by some women into rejection by all women. It's not just romantic and or sexual companionship Sardini desired. He also saw women as a means to gain status, both with other men and society in general. He wanted the boost he perceives a man got from having a woman on his arm or in his bed. He wrote, Just got back from tanning. Been doing this for a while. No gym today. My elbow is sore again. I actually look good. I dress good. I'm clean-shaven. Bathe. Touch of cologne. Yet 30 million women rejected me over an 18 or 25-year period. That's how I see it. 30 million is my rough guesstimate of how many desirable single women there are. A man needs a woman for confidence. He gets a boost on the job, career with other men, and everywhere else when he knows inside he has someone to spend the night with and who is also a friend. This type of life I see as a closed world with me specifically and totally excluded. Every other guy does this successfully to a degree. Flying solo for so many years is a destroyer. Yet many people say I'm easy to get along with, etc. Looking back, I owe nothing to desirable females who ask for anything, except basic courtesy, usually. Looking back over everything, what bothers me most is the inability to work toward whatever change I choose. On January 5th, 2009, the day before he intended to put his plans into action, Sodini writes of a woman he speaks to at the gym. Was at the gym to lift. Very crowded. Tomorrow should be good. There's a woman there that gives me a certain look every time I am there. I decided to walk over and make a comment about the crowds, but she left when I finished the exercise. Better that I do not get sidetracked from tomorrow's plans anyways. Life is just playing games. One or two dates with her, then the end. Sidini's hopelessness seemed to have deep roots in perceived rejections in his youth and again extrapolates those rejections to all women. He writes, No matter how many changes I try to make, Things stay the same. Every evening I'm alone, and then go to bed alone. Young women were brutal when I was younger. Now they aren't as much, probably because they see me as just another old man. I see twenty-something couples everywhere. I see a twenty-something guy with a nice twenty-ish young woman. I think those years slipped right by for me. Why should I continue another twenty-plus years alone? I will just work come home, eat, maybe do something, then go to bed alone for the next day of the same thing. This is the Auschwitz syndrome, to be in serious pain so long one thinks it is normal. I cannot wait for tomorrow. But the next day would hold more disappointment for Sedini as he failed to carry out his plan. He wrote, It is 8.45 p.m. I chickened out. I brought the loaded guns, everything. Hell. A few months later, in an April entry, Sedini gives voice to the economic stressors that both Kimmel and Ames referred to as he worried about the outcome of impending layoffs at the law firm where he worked. Early last month, we had our second general layoff. I survived. First one was in November. When I began ten years ago, that used to be a nice place to work. I understand the need to reduce staff when times sour, but this is out of proportion to the economic problems at this time. The economy is shrinking by about four to five percent. They decided not to pay Christmas bonus. For staff, that amounts to about eight percent of yearly pay. Well, okay plus no yearly merit raise, another 3.5%. That totals to about an 11% cut, plus two layoffs 
of 5% staff in each case. Do the math. I know this firm is using this downturn as an excuse to take advantage of a bad situation and kill jobs unnecessarily. The second layoff people who actually did work were let go. We all need to pick up the slack so the company can cut beyond what is necessary. He continues, I predict I won't survive the next layoff. That is when there is no point to continue. Right now, life is bearable and I can get by indefinitely. Something bad must happen. The paycheck is all I have left. The future holds nothing for me. Twenty-five years of nothing fun. I never even spent one weekend with a girl in my life, even at my own place. Also unlikely to find another similar job. I guess then is when I take care of things. I don't have kids, close friends, or anything. Just me here. If you have nothing, you have nothing to lose. In a May 2009 entry, Sedini is preoccupied with economic concerns, worried that his job will soon end and that he's not ready to re-enter the job market. In a later entry that month, Sedini writes about turning to alcohol after abstaining from it since 1998 to help fortify him to carry out his plan. He began keeping a list of items that will provide motivation to do the exit plan which he carried in his wallet. Later in the month, Sudini writes of going on an actual date with a woman he met on a bus a couple of months earlier, but it didn't seem to change his outlook. Women just don't like me. There are 30 million desirable women in the U.S., my estimate, and I cannot find one. Not one of them finds me attractive. The utter hopelessness Sudini expressed in these entries suggests that he struggled with mental health issues that could have benefited from professional help. He writes, The problem is, I feel too good now to do this, but too bad to enjoy life. I know I will never enjoy life. This is an over-30-year trend. Some people are happy, some are miserable. It is difficult to live almost continuously feeling an undercurrent of fear, worry, discontentment, and helplessness. I can talk and joke around and sound happy, but under it all is something different that seems unchangeable and a permanent part of my being. I need to realize the details of what I never accomplished in life and to be convinced that the future is merely a continuation of the past, which it has always been. I always had hope that maybe things will improve, especially if I make big attempts to change my life. I made many big changes in the past two years, but everything is still the same. Life is over. When Sudini's writings became public, mental health experts suggested that he may have benefited from professional therapy at some point, but he never sought help due to a lack of personal motivation and close relationships with friends or family who might have suggested he get help. Certainly he knew professional help was an option and could afford it, said Harold Koenig, professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Duke University Medical Center. He would have been a hard person to counsel, though, given his long-standing negativity about life. These people don't usually seek professional help. At some point, Sudini became unreachable. Throughout his web diary, he laments his inability to work towards change in his life. Sudini wrote about avoiding contact with people who might disrupt his negative viewpoint. Unfortunately, I talked to my neighbor today, who is very positive and upbeat, he wrote on August 3, 2009, the day before he opened fire in the fitness center. I need to remain focused and absorbed completely. Last time I tried this in January, I chickened out. 
Let's see how this approach works. He didn't get therapy, but Sardini did seek out professional help of a sort. After the shooting, video surfaced of Sardini attending a 2008 dating seminar in Los Angeles. This is probably the trip to Los Angeles that he referenced in his diary. The three-day, eight-hour workshops were run by author and self-described dating expert R. Don Steele. They were designed to help men pick their brains about what women like. Attendees came from across the country because they had trouble dating women. I would say that's the problem with most of the guys in the room, that you're too nice. Women don't like that. They don't respect it, Steele said in a video posted online. It's about as arousing as a booger. To underscore the point, he wrote on a whiteboard, nice guy must die. Writing at Salon.com, Kate Harding suggested that being a nice guy wasn't Sudini's problem. George Sudini knew he wasn't really a nice guy. He knew there was something blatantly wrong with him. He wished someone would tell him what it was, but who's going to say, you seem to have a really deep hatred of women and some serious rage issues and a ludicrously overblown sense of entitlement, and I'm guessing you'll need about a hundred years of therapy before you'll be ready for a healthy relationship. Certainly not any woman he approached at a bar who only wanted him to go away as quickly as possible and without incident, nor friends who, by all accounts, kept pulling away until he had none anymore, probably not his family, whom he professed to despise. So that left R. Don Steele, whose best advice was, nice guy must die. He was really, really quiet. He took a lot of notes, said Aaron Micklow, 20, who was hired to work at the self-help seminar Sedini attended on how to date women. By the end of the workshops, Micklow said, a lot of guys had loosened up. But George was pretty much just as nervous. Following the seminar, Sedini posted online videos in which he discussed his feelings. One video was a tour of his home, which he described as an assignment from a self-help seminar he had attended on how to date women. The video shows books on a coffee table, including one called Date Younger Women, as well as his bedroom, which he notes is very clean. In the second video, posted on July 23, 2008, Sedini talks about hiding his emotions. He admits that he knows he doesn't connect with other people, something he would have to work on to attract the younger women he wanted to date. Sedini says his objective was to learn to emotionally connect with people because when I'm 10 to 20 years older than she is, you know, she has to feel good about this thing. In the rest of his entries, Sedini alternates between reiterating his sense of hopelessness and bemoaning his celibate state. Here are a few excerpts as examples. I no longer have any expectations of myself. I have no options because I cannot work toward and achieve even the smallest goals. That is, above all, what bothers me the most, not to be able to work towards what I want in life. Some people I was talking with believed I date a lot and get around with women. They think this because I showed an email I got from a hot woman to the department gossip, but it didn't work out. All this is funny. Actually, I haven't had sex since I was 29 years old, 19 years ago. That's true. I was reading several posts on different forums, and it seems many teenage girls have sex frequently. One 16-year-old does it usually three times a day with her boyfriend. So uh, after a month of that, this little blank 
has had more sex than me in my life, and I'm 48. One more reason. I guess some of us were simply meant to walk a lonely path. I've slept alone for over 20 years. Last time I slept all night with a girlfriend, it was 1982. Proof I'm a total malfunction. Girls and women don't give me a second look anywhere. Just five days before the shooting, Sudini was questioned by the police. On July 28th, a passenger on the inbound 33X Port Authority bus reported to police that a man seated next to him had pulled out what looked like a grenade from a computer bag. The witness said the man noticed him watching, turned to him and said, It is real. Do you want to hold it? He told police he definitely saw it. He wasn't sure it was real, but it looked genuine to him, and the man was sort of toying with it in his hands, sitting there almost passing the time with the thing in his hands. Police started staking out the route on July 30th. A sergeant stopped, questioned, and searched Sodini because he matched the description of the man with the grenade. The officer photographed Sodini, but the passenger couldn't positively identify Sodini as the man with the grenade. Sudini was not charged, and police subsequently released him. Police would later find a note Sudini left on his table in his home that referenced the grenade incident. It read in part, Don't worry about that. It was a fake. In his final web journal entry on August 3rd, Sudini wrote that he took the day off to practice my routine and make sure it is well polished. I need to work out every detail, he wrote. There's only one shot. He closed with four miscellaneous statements. One, probably 99% of the people who know me well don't even think I was this crazy, told by at least 100 girls slash women over the years I was a nice guy. Not kidding. Two, Lee Ann Valdeseri had my baby in early 1991. Haven't seen her since she was about four months into it. I knew her sister, Chris, from high school. 3. Net worth slightly more than 250 k after all debt, as of the end of 2008. 4. Death lives. On Tuesday, August 4, 2009, Sudini visited the L.A. Fitness Health Club in Pittsburgh's suburb Collier Township three times. The first time at 11 a.m., a second time at 7.40 p.m., and the third time at 7.56 p.m. Members of the club were required to swipe a card to check in. Sudini paused to make a phone call to his mother. Then at 8 o'clock, he entered a women's Latin impact aerobics class. About 30 women were gathered for what they expected to be a fun workout, and about 100 people total were in the gym. A schedule later found in Sudini's home suggested that he targeted the class. He didn't know anyone in the class and most likely targeted it because he knew a lot of women attended the class. Sudini stepped into the 20 by 20 room, dressed entirely in black, and carrying a duffel bag containing at least four handguns. Class member Joanne Gazam saw him walk to the back of the room, set his bag down, and fumble with it for a few minutes. He stood up, with two Glock 9X 19mm semi-automatic pistols, turned off the lights, and started shooting. Aerobics instructor Mary Premis was ten weeks pregnant when Sedini shot her twice. 
It wasn't until I felt the first bullet that I realized what was happening, she said. Then I felt the second one. Premise, 26, was shot in an arm and her back. One bullet broke her ribs, shattered a shoulder blade, and popped a lung. She lay on the floor and played dead, holding her breath and staying as still as possible. She couldn't see Sardini and had no idea where he was in the room. Melina Williams, 23, was standing in front of Sardini when he started shooting. In the large mirror at the front of the room, she saw him walk to the back, put down his duffel bag, and take out two guns. When he fired one shot at the mirror, shattering it, Williams ran and hid behind a punching bag. She was shot in the leg. Jackie Morris, 28, remembered turning in a circle to a vibrant salsa beat. When she turned to face the front of the room again, everything went dark. It looked like fire, like flashes, she said. I had no idea. I'd never seen a gun before. And there were these loud pops. I still think it's fake sometimes. Morris instinctively ran toward the front of the room and dropped onto her stomach. I lay on my stomach because I thought, your back is stronger, and then I put my hands over my head, but really I thought, this is it. One bullet grazed Morris's torso as she was running. A second shot grazed her right shoulder. The third shot entered her lower back and shattered the rim of her pelvis and lodged near her tailbone. At first, she couldn't move, but Morris said a friend of hers, who had been shot in the shoulder, came over to her and urged her to get up. The firing stopped, she said. I kind of figured it was over, and my friend kept saying, he's done, let's go. 44-year-old Loretta Moss had come to the gym for the first time in a couple of weeks. She was exercising on a treadmill when she heard a popping noise. I didn't pay any attention, and the next minute people were screaming, she said. Then she heard more pops. There was like a whole spray of them, I'd say about 15 together. And then people started screaming and yelling and started running out of the building, she said. We laid down, and then after the last set of gunshots, we got up and someone said run. Moss said she then saw two young women bleeding, one shot in the leg and one in the shoulder. She said she checked on the pulse of the lady shot in the leg. She was screaming, it's burning, just please call the ambulance, Moss said. Lauren Dooley, 26, was running on another treadmill listening to her iPod when chaos broke out. I saw people flying off the treadmills, hitting the ground for cover, Dooley said. We crawled through the fire escape and I sprinted out the back. Richard Walker was in the area working on oil rigs. He was playing basketball near the exercise room when he heard the shots. The next thing I know, everybody's going, run, run, he said. He said he heard about 12 shots before he started moving and another eight or nine as he was leaving the building. He led a woman who had been shot in the thigh outside the building, about 50 yards. She just kept saying, he's going to kill me. Walker said she didn't elaborate. Sudini fired between 36 and 52 shots before he took out his 45 caliber revolver and committed suicide by shooting himself in the head. Investigators later found an unused 32 caliber pistol in his pocket. In his duffel bag, they found a note Sudini left behind, hinting at his motives, complaining that he'd never spent a weekend with a woman, never vacationed with a woman, never lived with a woman, and had limited sexual experiences. They would later find more writings in Sudini's home, as well as his web diary. The first 911 call about the shooting was dispatched at 8.16 p.m. Sudini killed three women that day. 
Jody Billingsley, 37, lived in the Pittsburgh suburb of Mount Lebanon. In 1990, she graduated from Franklin High School in Franklin, Pennsylvania, where she was a star member of the basketball team. She earned a BS degree from the University of Pittsburgh at Johnstown in 1994, an MS degree in physical therapy from Chatham University in 1997, and a doctorate in physical therapy in 2001. Billingsley worked as a sales representative for Medtronic, a medical equipment company. Her job often had her on the road, working long hours, helping doctors install high-tech pain management devices. She also found time to have fun and was known for her annual neighborhood Christmas party. A former basketball player, Billingsley was passionate about physical fitness and often biked or ran through the hills around her Mount Lebanon home. She made a brief stop at home that day before heading out to the gym. As she pulled out of the driveway, she smiled and waved to her neighbors, Diane and John Williams. A big wave to everyone in the neighborhood when she would drive in and drive out, said next-door neighbor, Jim Christner. I'd never once seen her with a bad attitude. Elizabeth Gannon, 49, of Green Tree, worked for 13 years as a radiology technologist at Allegheny General Hospital on Pittsburgh's north side. She didn't have children, but enjoyed spending time with her nieces and nephews. She enjoyed taking long walks with her Labrador retriever and took pride in her Irish heritage. Gannon had spent most of her life on Sheldon Avenue, a quiet, winding street in the Green Tree suburb. Neighbors watched her grow from a teenager into a confident woman who faced life's difficulties from the deaths of her parents to her divorce with a bright outlook. It's going to hurt a lot of people in this neighborhood, said Carl Rady, who has lived next door to Miss Gannon for 35 years. I have three daughters of my own. She was like the fourth one. Heidi Overmeyer, 46, of Carnegie, was a single mother who doted on her 15-year-old son, Ian, and worked at an amusement park as a sales representative. She was known at her church for annually writing and directing a Christmas play for children, complete with costumes she made. Overmeyer's day had started peacefully and with a gesture of kindness. She left a bagel on the desk of a colleague she knew was stressed about work. Jeff Filico preferred donuts, but he appreciated the gesture. It's always bagels. She always tried to eat healthy, recalled Filico, the park's public relations manager. She attended an employee picnic and another social event that afternoon before making a brief stop at home and then heading out to L.A. Fitness for the aerobics class. On August 6, 2009, approximately 75 people, including friends, women's rights advocates, clergy members, and local officials, held a vigil at the Pittsburgh City-County Building in downtown Pittsburgh in honor of the shooting victims. Funerals for Heidi Overmeyer and Elizabeth Gannon were held on August 8, 2009. About 200 gathered to remember Gannon at St. Margaret of Scotland Parish Church in Green Tree. The priest who officiated at Gannon's funeral said it was fitting that Sudini turned the lights off before he began shooting. Because that's what evil is all about, cowardice. Evil can't function any other way but in the dark, the Reverend Francis Bud Murhammer told the mourners. Overmeyer's funeral was held at First United Methodist Church in Bridgeville, less than a mile from the L.A. Fitness Club where the shooting took place. Overmeyer's pastor, the Reverend Josephine Whitley Fields, said Overmeyer's 
life was suddenly ended in a senseless act of violence, and each one of us have felt the pain and sadness of her departure. Billingsley's funeral was held on August 12, 2009, in Franklin, where she grew up. State Senator Mary Jo White addressed about 400 mourners who gathered for the funeral. White presented Billingsley's parents, Leon and Judith Billingsley, with a copy of the Senate resolution calling for a moment of silence honoring the victims at 11 a.m., the time that the funeral began. On August 18, 2009, it was revealed that Sodini bequeathed his estate, valued at 225, to his alma mater at the University of Pittsburgh. A spokesperson for the university stated that it had no interest in receiving any such distribution and requested that it go to the victims and the victims' families. Melina Williams, who was seriously injured in the shooting, passed the state nursing board exams she had delayed while recovering from a bullet wound in her leg. She went on to work at UPMC Mercy Hospital in Uptown, treating gunshot victims in the emergency room. She returned to LA Fitness the following June, where she took classes in the same room where the shooting occurred. Aerobics instructor Mary Premis was three months pregnant when Sedini shot her. She recovered and gave birth to a baby boy in February. Lisa Fleer, who was wounded in the shooting, survived to give birth to a baby girl due on August 21st. She is Truly is a miracle, Fleer said. God has truly blessed us in so many ways, and although I have my scars as a constant reminder of the tragedy I lived through, I don't look at them with sadness, but instead with a sense of courage and strength to know that George Sodini didn't get the best of me. Hate Crime Files podcast is researched, written, produced, and hosted by Terrence Heath. That's me. Thanks for listening. And to all my listeners and subscribers, thanks again for your support. I'll be back with another episode on the 15th of the month. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about it, and consider leaving a positive review at iTunes Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, be careful out there and be good to each other.